so again, this is Esther 1, 15 through 22, and I will read from the NIV. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? He asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memekin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and all the people of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti. Oh, that's the problem with using phones, guys. My apologies. Someone help me, was on verse 17, 16? Thank you so much. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest." The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Memekin proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. This is the word of the Lord. Um, the last few kind of weeks that I've, uh, we've been in this, uh, we've talked about things like the doctrine of discovery and how uh, colonialism and stealing land from indigenous people uh, was justified um, by the Pope and the church. And we've talked about white supremacy. We've talked about nationalism in the church. And last week, I tried to pivot uh, from white supremacy um, and colonialism to patriarchy in the church. And those things are very connected. And so I'm gonna take another swing at it today. But this time, uh, we're gonna look at, we're gonna actually look at scripture. Um, no, just kidding. Um, and uh, I mean center on scripture today, uh, more so, more so. Um, but as the community of faith, we can't allow ourselves in the gospel to be appropriated or co-opted. The church is not a voting block. It's not a weapon for those in power to wield. But the gospel is good news, the good news of Jesus Christ for the sake of those who cry out to Jesus, for the sake of the marginalized, for the sake of the poor, for the sake of the weak, for the sake of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and daughters and sons, for the sake of all of us. And uh, what's good news for some in world history, 
in our context may not be good news for others, but the gospel is meant to be good news for all people. Are you with me, church? And the church walks and lives and breathes in the margins. This is where the creator, spirit, savior dwells. The prophets in the Bible bring truth and deliver it to the kings and rulers, those in power. And they weren't popular, right? They were not normative. They were counter-cultural, counter-political, and counter the established social hierarchy. Let's take a couple, for instances, Jeremiah. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, and I'm looking at Jeremiah 22, 1 through 3. Go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. And again, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Isaiah, and this is uh, in Isaiah, wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. And so we see, even from the prophets, God's word to his people is, hey, watch out. I care about justice. I care about the fatherless. I care about the refugees and the immigrants and the strangers among you. I care about these things, and you should care about these people too. Plead the case of the widow. Plead the case. Advocate. Champion. Speak justice. Walk humbly. But I want to take a look today at another prophet that's often overlooked. And that's Queen Vashti. What? What? And the book of Queen Vashti, we read from the first chapter of the book of Esther. And, you know, in my, my tradition, the Asian American, Korean American, Asian American church, um, I think Esther is very popular. Like, like how many, how many uh, people, girls do I name, women that are named Esther, right? Esther Lee, Esther Kim, Esther Park, Esther, 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 Esther right? <laughs> right? Esther, so Esther's an important book in the Asian church, uh, maybe because she is a hero, right? And she champions for change, but in a very kind of indirect way or in the way that she's, like, she's very cautious about being invited into the king's presence. Only if the king invites me into this place. It's not kind of this direct, like, ah, but she kind of moves faithfully into, you know, what God is doing or what, what, what the circumstances are calling to and using her position for a time such as this um, to advocate for her people. But we often overlook Queen Vashti and, and sometimes maybe include Queen Vashti in like those evil people, right? 
She's, she's not right. She's not a good character. She's not a good person. But actually, you know, in various church traditions, Queen Vashti is elevated into like prophets and honored in churches because she stands up against the established power, against the patriarchy. She loses position, probably her life. It doesn't say directly, but she loses her position in her life to say no, right? To say no. And so in this sense, like all the other male prophets that we read about and we honor in the Bible, she is a prophet that maybe paves the way for Esther and Mordecai um, and the people of Israel um, to be delivered. Are you with me, church? Um, there's an article in, what's that magazine? The Asian American one. Huh? Yeah, Inheritance. There we go. Uh, Bianca Mabute Louie uh, wrote an article on Queen Vashti identifying and interrupting toxic masculinity. Um, she writes, Queen Vashti's refusal is prophetic because it reveals the injustices of patriarchy in the Persian kingdom. Her denial threatens not only King Xerxes, but the entire Persian empire and his family structures, revealing the fragility of masculinity and its systems. What unfolds are the layers and manifestations of toxic masculinity, rape culture, victim blaming, and patriarchal protection. Woo! That's a mouthful, but it's in there. It's in there. So just to set the stage, right, per, uh, the Persian Empire, we're probably talking uh, fifth century right now. They took over Israel, uh, but then they allowed the Israelites back, you know, groups of them back to Jerusalem to kind of rebuild, right? But people like Esther and Mordecai remain. They remained, and right now they're in the capital of Persia. And Xerxes here, I mean, there's different debates about who really, one, is Esther historically accurate, and two, who's the king here. Um, but a lot, we'll just say Xerxes. Um, but they remained there, and uh, Persia was, like many great empires, a great empire that um, controlled many languages, many peoples um, under its shadow. And so uh, the Israelites, the people of Israel, um, Jewish people are living in the Persian, the diaspora are living in the Persian empire, kind of living under this shadow. Um, and so Xerxes wanting to lord his riches and his glory and just, I'm the man, uh, to all the nobles and the rich people and the aristocracy around them, invite them to a big party, right? Let's have a big banquet so I can show you, like, all the food that I have, my palace, how great I am, how great, right? We're making, yeah, we're making Persia great again. And uh, so they're... He's showing these things, right? Demonstrating his power. And uh, meanwhile, Vashti, uh, it's all men, right? It's all men. 
Vashti is holding an alt party, right? An alt party of women. And we don't know why. Maybe it's, hey, let's, do, let's have women time because the guys are getting drunk over there. The men are getting drunk over there and they're being belligerent and they're, you know, we need to stay away from there, right? So she, she throws this party, this celebration, this, her own banquet. And banquets are a theme in the Book of Esther's. There's many, many, many banquets, um, which should be paid attention to, but too, too vast for what we're doing today. But uh, so she throws a banquet, and may, it's a time, a, a place of safety, maybe a place of encouragement and empowerment for the women in her sphere of influence. But as they're getting, as Xerxes and his buddies are getting drunk and partying, suddenly he's like, I want Everyone, they've seen my palace. They've seen everything. I want them to see my beautiful wife and come have her dance in front of them. And who knows what else, right? I just want to put my trophy wife on display for everyone to see. And guess what happens? What does Vashti do? Vashti says no and refuses to come. Because he's probably like, you know, he's just using me, right? He's using my beauty. He's using my body. And who knows what's going to happen if I go there? Maybe I'll have to dance for people. Maybe he'll allow his friends to use me and the other women around me, right? So she says no to this, to Xerxes' power over her body. Right? Are you with me? Everything's all right so far? Um, so this idea of control over women's bodies, right? We're not strangers to this in our culture, probably in every culture in history. Men's control over women's bodies. Um, and this idea of refusing to take no for an answer, right? Refusing to take no for an answer. And Vashti says no. And this is why she's a threat to the kingdom. She's a threat to Xerxes. But this is why uh, in the Bible, we ought to lift her up as a hero. Amen? Um, so Xerxes embarrassed, right? He's lost face. And he's like, what? She must be punished, right? She's challenged. She's outright said no to me. And so he gathers his advisors and he says, what must be done, right? And one of his advisors, uh, uh, Mamukin, replies in the presence of the kings and nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all women, to all the other women in the kingdom, and they too will despise their husbands. Not because of what their husbands are doing, but just because of what Vashti did, they'll get the idea, somehow the seed of despising their husbands will be planted, right? They too will despise their husbands. 
and blah, blah, blah. This very day, the Persian and Median women of nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord, right? So what's happening here is basically victim blaming, right? Queen Vashti is depicted as the villain, blamed not, uh, blamed not only for defying the king, but for threatening the kingdom itself, right? Threatening the structure of society, threatening gender norms and Persian family values. And she ends up losing her title and probably even loses her life, right? And there you get an example of violence against women, right? How power structures um, can commit violence against women. The, the third thing, control over women's bodies, victim blaming, and then the, this whole idea of uh, protecting the established patriarchy, right? He calls his advisors, and they're like, they don't hold him to account. They don't call them out. They're like, uh, you're drunk, and you're just trying to show off. Maybe you should chill off on Vashti. They're like, what rules or decrees do you want to make so we ensure that this never happens again? Right? It's kind of like they are wanting Xerxes to save face. Everything they do is not to upset him or kind of have him lose face, but to protect the control, protect the patriarchy, right? So, therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else, who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, and here's, a, here's like the turn, right? All the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest, right? And, and the king and his nobles, they were pleased with this advice, right? So he sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. This idea of languages too, like King Xerxes likes to make decrees and send them out into all the land, and uh, the times that it happens throughout the book of Esther, it's all in many, in many languages languages and people's native tongues. And we talked about the Tower of Babel, right? I think it was last week how God scattered the languages, right? And kind of reversed our, our kind of humanity's tendency to be a monolith, right? To gain control um, and kind of spreading the languages and the cultures. But you, here you see all languages and cultures coming under Right, the rule of Persia, the rule of Xerxes, and he's that shadow is over many cultures in different languages. And the decree, that one decree 
going to different households, different families from different backgrounds, religions, etc., etc., saying that every man should be the ruler over his own household, right? In your native tongue, blah 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 blah, blah 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 blah, right? We're in control. So how did this happen? From point A, being in a drunken stupor and being embarrassed by your wife in front of your friends to making a decree for all the lands and all languages that the patriarchy must be defended and held. Boom. Right? And all his advisors are saying, do this, do this, do this. They're protecting, right? They're protecting the hierarchy. They're protecting uh, the patriarchy. And so we also see here the codification of means of dominance and control, right? Just like things like the uh, doctrine of discovery, which codified and made law, right? White European dominance and supremacy and kind of the divine right of God for them to explore and take on lands, we also see in history codification of laws to defend the patriarchy, to keep the patriarchy established, right? And so this is what's happening in Persia in Xerxes' kingdom is the codification of patriarchy, the king's decree to ensure that husbands are the head of the household. But this has nothing to do with justice. It has nothing to do with law, right? It has everything to do with Xerxes' own fragility, right? His male fragility, right? His weak kind of control over his realm, over his people, over his queen, or his sense of feeling threatened. Are you with me, church? And in this threat and feeling threatened, he uses his title and his position and his words to codify and strengthen his position. Wow. Um... There was another quote from Bianca Mabute-Louis. Black womanist and Jewish feminist theologians have been reviving and redeeming stories like that of Queen Vashti, who have been intentionally excluded from mainstream interpretations because their embodied resistance continue to threaten the patriarchy. Likewise, it is imperative for Asian Americans Oh, I'll read that part, but it's... Likewise, it's imperative for Asian Americans to interpret and apply Queen Vashti's story in our theological praxis, community organizing, and current social-political context, right? What does it mean that Queen Vashti be honored as a prophet, right? That her voice goes out against the powers, and she speaks truth to power at the risk of her own life, right? And to honor and to recognize this instead of to hide this in the sides and in the margins. 
we see that Jesus died because of things like this. Amen? That Jesus spoke truth to power. He could have taken himself off the cross. Jesus could have, right, performed miracles on behalf of people in power and doled them out, right? Like sold his miracle healing and won favor with the religious institutions and established powers and the Roman Empire, right? He could have raised up an army of people and thrown a military coup, a military revolution with God's power behind him, right? But he spoke truth to power and chose the way of love, nonviolence, and peace. And for that, he was crucified. And what does it mean as people of the way, the Jesus way, to likewise for us to stand prophetically against power, against established power, at the risk of our reputation, at the risk of our population, our pop popularity, at the risk of our church growing, even, to speak truth to power, amen? We will not be co-opted, right? We will not let the gospel um, be co-opted by other things, whether that's consumerism, right? Or nationalism, or some kind of brand of hate and division that's kind of couched in, you know, scripture and the gospels to justify the hurting and the marginalization of other people. We will not, but we say no. Right? To stand up. Amen? Can we be that church? Can we be that people? Can we stand courageously in that? Because we have nothing to lose. But to hold on to truth and be bearers of truth so that voices can be heard, so that people can live, so that people can thrive. Amen? So that the mosaic of God's creation and the image of God, right? His people, his sons and daughters, right? Old men can dream dreams and see visions and speak out. Be artists. Sing, right? Express the full gifts of who God is and made us to be and freedom, and not entrapped in some sort of false body, right? Of this is what it means to be male. This is what it means to be female. This is what it means to be strong. This is what it means to lead. This is what it means to be this or that in the church. But to bust out of that and to allow God to say, this is who you are. I know you. I made you. Are you with me, church? Yes. People say that racism and white supremacy, things like that, don't just hurt people of color, but it hurts white people too. It hurts all of us, right? It hurts all of us from fully living into the identity 
and relationships God has intended for us. We limit ourselves. We build divisions and barriers and say, I cannot be that. I cannot go there and you cannot come here. It hurts all of us. None of us are free when artificial systems of order are established as means to control the world around us. Rather than just leaning into the power of God and breathing the air in his creation. In the same way, patriarchy and toxic masculinity doesn't just hurt women, but it hurts men as well. I know for me and for many of us men, we feel we need to maintain and embody some vision of strength, right? Some amount of competence, some illusion of control. We feel that we need to be strong, the strong man, right? For our families, the strong person that takes care and protects everyone. And in this way, emotions, sometimes emotions and sensitivity and vulnerability are pushed down as signs of weakness. To lead, we must be strong, loud, and in charge, right? I know personally in my own testimony and my own call into ministry, I'm a poet. Let me just say there, say that. Hi, my name is Dave Sim and I am a poet. But I know in my call into full-time ministry, one of the things that was at war inside me is like, I can't be a pot-smoking, long-haired, sensitive poet, <laughs> right? That's just not going to work as a pastor or as a leader, right? And so in my heart, I gave that away. I was going to go to grad school, uh, a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing, and I chose the path of university staff, but I didn't know that it, I thought it meant that I put that creativity down and pursue what God was calling me to be a strong leader, whatever that was, have the gift of leadership, which was something that was emphasized in our, in our kind of culture at the time, right? To be a visionary leader, to be a, a field general, right? As an NF, being an NT field general, it's not going to work, right? right? To see the vast people and not worry about the little relationships in front of you to, like, you know, have the bus rolling in one direction and get, get everybody on the bus, right? That kind of leadership, that, you know, being strong, highly directive. And that just wasn't me. Or... I felt like that my sensitivity and my intuition were not a part of that, were not valued in that place. And so I, I set that aside and chased an artificial version of myself and my gifting and my calling and my strength. You with me, church? But now it's renew, right? Renew, church. And... Man, it was so good to have, what's his name? David, David. Ch Chang. Uh, my name, yeah, my name. Here to do calligraphy, and he, 
he kind of did uh, wrote people's names and kind of spoke into our names or spoke into our lives. And one of the encouragements he had is like, your name is big. He wrote my name really big. And he said, your name is big because I see you taking up a lot of space. Not like, I control the world space, but like allowing my, the full expression of who I am and my creativity, which I pushed down because that's not male leadership. Um, and so I've been writing a lot more poetry in the past year, and people don't understand it all the time, and they're like, what, what, what what's happening? It's images, images. I understand it, but it helps me, right, to understand my own feelings and to understand my relationships and the church or, you know, my calling, right, from, from something deeper that isn't just linear language, right, or isn't kind of linear, like, broken down into bullet points. Anyways, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's my testimony in terms of that, how, I've, how we can push who we are down. As for the church, in the church, we don't even have to mention the hordes of churches that limit women's roles in the church or keep women's voices silenced. But many of you have experienced that or have been in those places. Beyond this, um, for instance, women on staff uh, under male pastors are frequently gaslit, made to feel, what's wrong with me? If there's conflict or disagreement with the head male pastor. Or this whole idea of uh, God is the image, is the projection of my father, right? How I view God is how I view my father. There may be, there's pieces of that, but that's not the only piece, right? And the only vision or image that some of us may have of God is authoritative, one who exacts punishment and judgment, right? And is emotionally distant. And pastors don't help with this uh, male-centric interpretation of Scripture. But going back to Genesis 1.27 again, let us create humanity in our image, male and female, right? Not man in our image, male and female, right? So is God simply male? Is God simply man? God is much more, right? He's not that small. Uh, so I wanted to go through a list of images of God or God um, as feminine or female or mother in Scripture. Hosea 11, 3-4. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I who took them up <laughs> in my arms but they do not know that I healed them. I led them with the cords of human kindness and bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. God as a mother feeding her infants. Deuteronomy 32, 11 through 12. Like the eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, 
God spreads wings to catch you and carries you on pinions. An e a mother eagle, right? Carrying you to, to its nest. Isaiah 66, 13, God as a comforting mother. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Isaiah 42, 14, God as a woman in labor. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept myself still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. Matthew 23, 37 and Luke 13, 34, God as mother hen. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. God is not only male or father, but scripture testifies that God is also right mother and female and has these aspects um, and these are aspects that are in us as well male toxic masculinity I'm gonna hit this a little harder I think not just in the church but in our culture at large we still have this male entitlement, right? Men can do anything and still be justified and still be excused by God, right? We have politicians and presidents that, former presidents that could demonstrate this, right? We, ambition and the Lone Ranger, right? We celebrate that in a young buck man like that are ambitious and a lone ranger, it doesn't matter who they hurt, but at least they're like, oh man, that guy's a maverick. He's going to be a leader someday. No matter what mistakes he makes or who he tramples on, man, that, that guy's a leader. And then male characters in the Bible elevated as Christ figures, right? Adam. Uh other people <laughs> slipped my mind I should have made a note of that in my scriptures but you know what I'm talking about but why not women why not Vashti right why not Esther as a side note the book of Esther is one of the only books along with the uh, Song of Solomon that has no explicit mention of God in it God is not in there I mean, you can see the indirect, like, God is at work. But that's why in a lot of kind of canonization, the history of canonization, it was like back and forth. Like, Esther is a secular book, or like, should this be in the canon, right? But finally, it w it's in the canon, um, and we elevate Esther. Uh, but we should also elevate Queen Vashti. Victim blaming and body shaming. I'm going to start going out into deeper, deeper territory here. Uh, we value morality and policing morality above embodiment and the celebration of our bodies. And because of this, we tend to oscillate between shame and control around our bodies. 
I did this in college, right? Right, desire, desire. I love you, I love you. Let's do this and this and this. Get away from me, get away from me. Get thee to a nunnery, right? Let's cut off the relationship. Let's not do anything, no touchy, right? And then the next day, ah, I love you, I love you, right? Make me feel good. <gasps> Shame. My body, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this. Back and forth, back and forth. Between control, right, and shame. We either feel shame because we're breaking the rules and we're, you know, doing bad things, but then we turn to control to fix that, <laughs> right? Instead of being like, God is gracious, Jesus loves me and this other person. <clears throat> um, the other thing, our bodies are the last thing we listen to. And I got this from a podcast with um, my friend was on it, Ellen, Ellen Hoffman, who I was a staff partner with. She's a spiritual director. Um, but she said, our bodies are often the last thing we listen to, right? We listen to our minds first, and then sometimes we'll listen to our hearts in the church, right? But all the while, our bodies are screaming. Because there's that dualism, right? We like, the body is bad, right? Our body, our flesh, that's bad. And that's why sometimes we feel chronic pain. We experience chronic pain, right? Because our bodies are screaming out to us, right? Stop working. Or you're not in a good place. Or love yourself. Take care of yourself. Be kind to yourself. But God made our bodies and said, it's, this is very good. Jesus came, became human body. And it was good. So why do we like trash our bodies sometimes or feel so ashamed about our bodies, right? When it, it is a gift, right? Our bodies are gifts, a beautiful, good, complex, mysterious, amazing gift. Are you with me, church? And when we oscillate between the shame of our bodies and desire and control, it doesn't lead to good things. It just leads to secrets, right? It leads to people like scandal, people all of a sudden messing up, having second lives and secret lives because it creates a dualism, right, and double lives. But instead, we need to be honest and kind of be in our bodies and take that to Jesus. Take that to God. Are you with me, church? And the church needs to be more open about talking about, right, that we are bodies. Whew. Sometimes we value lordship above love. So, women, come into the fullness of who you are and how God has made you. I pray and long that this 
our church and this place can be a place where you can be free, that you do not experience being gaslit, or you're not put down because you're ambitious, or you're strong, or you have something to say, and you feel, maybe not out loud, but shut up, shut up, shut up, woman, right? That our, our culture is not one where you, you feel that shut upness, right? And men come into the fullness of who you are and how God has made you, right? And, you know, I've been convicted because I like to say, oh, the Evangelical Covenant Church, we've been ordaining women since 1976. We have our first woman president, like no other religious denomination or organization has that, right? We're diverse up and down, blah, 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 blah. But we have issues, right? And uh, there are ways where patriarchy and toxic masculinity still continue to flourish, unchallenged, unfettered, right? Hiding behind different kind of wording and language and structures. And I like to pat myself on the back. Hey, we have women who preach, who have the, I give up the pulpit. I share the pulpit with women, right? Woo, look at me. I'm an advocate for women in ministry. Look how many women I've raised up and sent out to minister. Raised up and sent out. Well, it's more like women have raised me up, right? And I pat myself on the back. And so before saying that my job is about, right, beating down the patriarchy and affirming women in ministry and advocating for women, I need, my first job is to turn and look at myself and see how I still buy into toxic masculinity and patriarchy. I grew up in the Korean church. I grew up in a Korean household, right? It's still my tendency to, like, sit on the couch and talk with other guys when all the women are washing dishes and preparing food. Like, that's what I look for. I go to someone's house, I look for the couch, right? (laughs) Or turn on the TV, right? That's a, like, it's not just because I'm lazy, right? It's because somewhere in my growing up, women should serve me. Right? Women should cook for me. Women should, that's the other thing, take care of the kids. Right? And I pat myself on the back, right? When I was in seminary and Janice was working full time, I was a stay-at-home dad, right? And I babysat my kids. It's like, oh my gosh, right? That's like the bare, that's less than the minimum. Right? We're patting ourselves, I'm patting myself on the back for being a father. Amen? So those are things you just have to check in yourself. Like as, as woke or as like, man, I am a feminist, I'm a defender of women's rights. As much as we're like that, right, there's still crap in there. I had a mentor in college and campus ministry while I was a student ask a group of men, and this was his way of getting at this. He said, raise your hand, how would you feel, or like, raise your hand if you are all right 
if the woman you marry in the future is taller than you or makes more money than you? No one raised their hand. And then we had a really big conversation. Wow. Because there's still something in us like, I need to be bigger and taller, a protector, and I need to be provider. Right? And I, you know, yeah, Janice makes way more money than me. <laughs> She's not taller than me. But. <laughs> Let's pray. God, thank you for your, <laughs> thank you for your word. Thank you. Sometimes we make a mess of things. Sometimes we make a mess of your created order, the beauty of relationship that you've established. And we make a mess of your good news and your word to us. We make a mess of creation out there. And forgive us and show us a different way. Um, Show us a new way what it means to be citizens in your kingdom and to take on more fully the names that you've called us by and the gifts that you've given us and the voice um, you're putting in our mouths to speak. In Jesus' name, power of the Holy Spirit. In your name, creator. Amen.